So this is one of our back to back recording ones. Mm-hmm. Um, so I got a couple more things to to share from from the trip that I well you should because, it's because good stuff. So because I'm kind of tired today. I've been tired since I got back. This the thing that I mean, sucks fair. the most about traveling. That it was like I was awake for 24 hours on Saturday. It's a lot of hours. It's a lot of hours because you're changing three flights. It was it was it was a lot, and I was very tired when I got home. And but the problem is, no matter how tired you are, your body's like at 4 a.m. Hey, it's like noon now. You should be up. Right. <laughs> I hate it so much. It's like the worst yeah, thing terrible. about returning from from a trip like that. Um, so, yeah, so I woke up at, well, I mean, I woke up a bit better today at 6 a.m., which was good, and then um, went to get coffee. I think, so I'm at our cathedral right now because I'm doing a wedding this week for a couple who's at a parish because they don't even have a priest, and um, wow, yeah. that's a very active parish. We're just that short on priests, so I'm doing the wedding this week, so I'm down for the rehearsal and the wedding. Um, so when I'm down, I'm always a little sad because... I don't have my coffee machine with me. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I have to go to Starbucks. And, like, mm. I got a venti pike today. Okay. And, like, every time I get one, I'm, like, more and more disappointed. Dude, it's very, it's, it's if very you go to burnt. Starbucks, you can't just get a coffee if you go to Starbucks. That's a waste of your money. But it's like you got to get, get something stupid. In the, in the filter coffee. Yeah, but you need to get some sort of frappuccino or mixed whatever or just... That's only like one shot of espresso. That's like nothing. You can ask for more. But then it ruins the taste. Well, not ruins the taste, but it changes the dynamics of the taste of the drink. I'm sure it does. But the thing is, if you're going to go to Starbucks and you're not ordering something like a frappuccino or some sort of ridiculous concoction, throw in some extra shots of espresso in there, pay your $10 for your ridiculous coffee... (laughs) But don't don't go there and get a cup of coffee. Just go to a gas station and get a cup of coffee. It'll be no. just as good. <laughs> well, there's no, well, there's no gas stations around here either. I got to find a better yeah. coffee place because I couldn't even finish the coffee. It was just so burnt mm-hmm. and everything. So that was one yeah. of the other interesting things. We went. To, I was went to a coffee shop nearby a couple times. I, you know, I, I, it's not like a Starbucks. It'd be like I'd get a, like a large drip coffee. They like look at me all weird, and then they'll say, yeah. "Oh, you mean filtered?" I said, "I, I think I guess." Yeah. yeah, I guess that's what I want. No, so. I want I want my coffee crunchy. Could you please make me a crunchy exactly, coffee? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, but so here's the other thing. So, you know, when people go to places like Scotland, mm-hmm. um, what do you think they would be buying lots of to bring home? Oh, uh, people would be buying scotch, obviously, from, from right. Scotchland. That's, oh. Isn't that the whole oh. idea of yeah. going Don't Don't Scotland? call it scotch there. Just they just call it whiskey. Yes, yeah, call it whiskey. Yeah. They'll be very offended if okay. you call it scotch. <laughs> okay. Okay. I'm sorry. We call, I'm we sorry. Call, we call it scotch. To listen, I'll to, call it whatever you guys want, uh, dear Scotland listen, listeners. If you if you send me a bottle, I'll call it whatever you want. Yeah. Um. Yeah. My, that's and I, I bought a. I was thinking about buying a bottle someplace. I didn't. I, I didn't want to check it because I wasn't. Well, I, I brought duffel bags. And this is the other thing. So um, I, I, I packed. I packed. I did not check bags going over because I didn't want my bags to get lost, and that happened to many people. Uh, I checked bags coming back, and my bags did not arrive. But thankfully, they came the next day, which I was actually quite happy about. Um, that's not too bad, all things considered, with how crazy airports are right now. Sure. Um, but so I actually had a lot of space because all I packed was clerical shirts, pants, t-shirts, underwear, socks, toiletries, yeah. and I brought like eight books for me to read. Um, just always, always pack a library, always pack a library, and it was all it was all carry on, and it was all good. Yeah. Um, but I actually had a lot of room because, like, JBL gave me a Patagonia bag last year. Oh, they're so good. I, I this you is can the, stuff it, those guys. They are amazing. Yeah. I love them so amazing. much. And yeah. there was a lot of extra room. Mm-hmm. So yes, you're right. People buy scotch. I bought a bottle of scotch at the at the duty free. Because uh, that way I could use it. It doesn't count as an extra carry on or anything like that. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and I didn't buy a lot because of scotch because I often don't really drink by myself. Mm. And so it'd be re- it would sit there probably for years if I bought too many. Uh, I need to drink with someone. This is why okay. you need to get your passport because you need to come and drink my scotch with me. All right. All right. Um, you're right though. People would probably buy scotch or or, or like tweed or 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 argyle pattern things or yeah. or you know kilts and berets or like and, a, a a claymore or yes, a sword exactly, you know ex- or, exactly yeah 
Maybe these some, are these, I don't know, golf these balls? Are, these, these are normal. Oh, we went to St. Andrew's Golf Course just after they had the British Open. Oh, that's cool. Oh, sorry. This is actually kind of cool. We were going by there. <laughs> they closed the old golf course on Sundays, and anybody could just walk it. Cool. No one plays golf there on Sundays. That's amazing. They just close it. And so everyone's out there going for a walk. So we're going on like the historic 18th tee and everything like that. It's it just really cool. It was very neat. Um, anyways, yes, you're right. These are all things people would buy in Scotland. Mm-hmm. What do you think I bought? Well, I know you bought some skills in Starbursts. Let's yes. see. What else would Father Harrison buy? Um, <laughs> did you get a, a Scottish toque? I did not. A little hat? No. no. Uh, I mean... What else does Father Harrison like? Hmm. Did you buy a Kindle? Take that back. I have a Kindle. <laughs> Father Harrison, how many books did you buy in Scotland? 26. <laughs> what? <laughs> so many. <laughs> so, okay. Um, so our first foray into a bookstore, I was very excited about, it and actually was very disappointed when we got there. We were in um, Inverness, I think, or is it Aberdeen? No, it's Inverness. And there's this bookstore there that's an old church. And I was very excited about the aesthetic of this and everything. And I figured the sure. weight of the location, the weight of the location would mean an amazing selection of books. Yeah. You would think this. Sure. They had like, almost no philosophy section yeah, like like, like a, a, a half a shelf that was it like half of a single shelf in a bookcase unacceptable unacceptable and like the theology whatever they had was pretty crappy um i did i bought a couple books there but i was very disappointed because it was a very big place it's it's very popular it's aesthetically pleasing and the selection sucked okay yeah so our last day ended up being pretty much a free day I mean, I, well, I skipped out on the last distillery tour because, like, again, like I said last last time, you know, I kind of figured out how distilling works at this point. Like, I could probably start yeah. up my own distillery in my garage. <laughs> um, but what – so I was just like – so we, we found out first – I don't know if people know this, but J.K. Rowling's from Edinburgh. Yeah, and there's a graveyard there. There's a graveyard there that the theory is that's where she got a lot of the names for her characters of the book because there's like a gravestone for like Tom Riddle and yeah. all these different names there. It's a very cool cemetery too. It was very yeah. so we found like all these 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 tombstones there for these where she probably where it's implied that she got and it's very it's a very beautiful city. It's only it's very small. It's only five hundred thousand people for a city. Very beautiful city. Yeah. Um. Anyways, but then I thought, well, let's look at used bookstores in town. We're, yeah. we're in the UK. UK is, people love books, and so let's let's do that. And I I went to like four or five bookstores while I was down there that day, and that's when I bought the majority of my books. Um, and some of them were just nice finds. Some of like I got a first edition of of um got a first edition of Ronald Knox's book enthusiasm which is a study of quakerism and quietism in the 17th and 18th century um mm-hmm. very very good book actually um and I, I found a book on mediation that i was very excited about that i had found it in the library i just got some scanned pages from and i got it for six pounds and i'm like this is amazing so that's fun and yeah. so i got some good stuff yeah i bought a bunch of books that that's what i bought a bunch of that and and i also bought when i went a lot of the distillers have a lot of like swag Besides just selling you scotch, they'll have t-shirts, yeah. they'll have jackets and stuff like sure. that. A lot of them also have really nice notebooks, mm-hmm. like those moleskin kind of notebooks. So oh, that's yeah, what yeah, I was yeah. buying at the distilleries. I'd buy a notebook from each of them whenever if they had them. So As they, a, they have like the because I'm, logo. I'm, yeah, because like I'm really bad at souvenirs. I don't. I, I I have to declutter all the time because of ADHD. So I do not keep stuff around that I don't use. Sure. And so I was like, this is a fun thing. I I will use these eventually. I bought like five of them. Mm-hmm. I'll use these eventually for notes. And then it's a way to remember the trip, but it's also something useful that I know I will use and keep. And so that was actually fun, and that was kind of cool. But yes, I bought a lot of books. That that, and that's why I had to check the bags going back because there's no way I was going to carry all that weight around. Um, mm-hmm. And they came the next day, so that was good. That's so, great. Yeah. Speaking of books, welcome to Clerically Speaking. Yeah, that's fair. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. We talk about books pretty often around here. Uh, so I got bad news, Father Harrison. Mm-hmm. 
You ready? You're sitting mm-hmm. down? I know you're sitting down and I can see you on our Zoom I mean, call. I better be sitting down. Yeah. The bad news is uh, I think we have to cancel the podcast and this will be our last episode. What? Why? Uh, because too many people in my parish are uh, <laughs> finding out about the podcast and it's freaking me out. <laughs> so every parish is different. I've been to a lot, yeah. uh, three at least. Uh technically more than that but anyway and the people in this parish are definitely more aware of podcasts like before okay. my other places would be occasionally you know someone be like oh i found out you had a podcast but now it's like every little parish event i go to someone mentions my podcast and i'm getting more and more nervous like okay what have i said um is there anything that i'll get in trouble for now that more and more people locally like we have thousands of listeners but now i'm getting nervous about it <laughs> And usually, you know, they say very nice things, which is nice, um, which I appreciate. Uh, but uh, it's weird. It's weird that uh, this is happening more and more because very often my experience of our podcast is me having a conversation with you. Yeah. Every two it. weeks. Yeah. And that's it. That's the whole podcast world for me. Yeah. Um, it's hard to imagine that like 10,000 people plus listen to this. Um, it's just weird for my brain. It doesn't mm-hmm. make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, when you get more and more people in the parish, like, oh, I heard your podcast, blah, 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 blah. Uh, I'm like, oh, no. Wait, you oh, want to no. listen to me more? Yeah. Don't you, don't you hear enough silly. of me already? I know. I already preach really long and stuff. I don't know what you guys... It's weird. It's weird yeah, that people like it. I don't know. It yeah. makes me nervous. It, it's, so, it, it, yeah. It, it always shocks me that people actually listen. Mm-hmm. Every time. Like, on the trip, I was like, oh, listeners came that's cool um and f- it is it is cool it's just like weird it's always weird to me because like i'm just a dude in a parish yeah that's it that is we how are, i see myself we are the most regular priests you can yeah. find there is nothing special about us there is like zero <laughs> clout chasing in us we we uh we recognize that the podcast has a reasonable reach but sure. you know but it's like we we aren't you know like i never advertise my podcast in the no. parish or anything like that not because no, i don't want people, that like, would feel they, icky it, it feel icky and it's also i they hear from me enough yeah right <laughs> they don't need to hear my voice more i preach long mm-hmm. enough on sunday they don't need mm-hmm. more of me and you know so some some no i know I have some parishioners do listen and that's fine and and but i don't like I, i'm not the type to make a deal of it i think we actually have to blame uh producer nick because he must make us sound way better than we actually are. Right. This is why we can never do any live shows. Because <laughs> Bruce and Nick just makes everything work together so we sound brilliant, even though also, we're not. So Live shows are very nerve-wracking. We The few live shows we've done, we get so excited that it's just... Blah, 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 the entire got, time. We've only done one, haven't we? Yeah, and it was nuts. Our energy was insane. Yeah. Did yeah. we do only one there? It felt like we did more. I guess I was on several episodes. Well, We've done All like right. we've yeah. had we've had we've had recordings in person, mm-hmm. right? Like where we've had other priests on and stuff like that. Like when we've had our sure. hangouts, but I think that was the only live show was SLS. Yeah, that's true. That was our only live show. But I did another podcast. I did um, Taylor Trails Forte Catholic Live as well, and that's just too right. much energy. Yeah, it's Freaking a lot down. of energy. Yeah. So, yeah, no, but so I hear yeah. you. Yeah, we maybe maybe it's time to just cancel the podcast and say yep. it, was, it had a good run, mm-hmm. but now it's getting it's getting too well known. In, yep. in your parish that maybe it's time to, to move on to other things yeah we're, we can't sell out we got i think i think the wall street journal was our sellout moment and like we've just betrayed our true selves and now we've got to just go but down we, in flames here's the thing. we didn't even we didn't even change that that just fell in our lap that's like, true and actually i mean people don't know we actually got some radio requests after that we turned all of them down <laughs> yeah yeah it's like no 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 we were happy to do this article this review this interview thing and that that's it that's it. Like, no, I don't want to. I wanna really be- didn't think it was going to happen. I thought, like, once once she, like, did figure out, like, oh, there's actually no story here. There's no point in this. But she actually made a good but story anyway. of it and everything, yes. No, but no, it's, it's very no, nice. No, it was very, very nice. nice. But it's like, okay. oh, no. I, yeah, so- it is just, it is, it is always just flabbergasting. Like, I, I've been, every week now, it's like I'm hearing from other people, oh, yeah, we love your podcast here at this place and that. But I'm like, what? What? Very what? silly. All you people what? are silly. You're silly, silly people. All right. So, that's enough yes. self-indulgent uh, podcast uh, talking. Uh, yeah. Harrison, take us away. Theological emergencies? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess I'm, yeah, I'm hosting. Sorry. I just I had a brain fart there for a second. Okay. Where is that? That's the... all right.
Hi, fathers. I have a question about godparents and sacramental records. Uh, my sister is about to give birth next month, and she's trying to decide on godparents for her new son. Um, she has a friend who she was thinking about asking to be the godfather, uh, but this friend was born in the Philippines, and it turns out he does not have access to any of his, uh, like, records for his sacraments of initiation. Um, I guess some tragedy struck his parish where he was baptized back in the Philippines. Um, so what what would one do in that kind of situation, like, if you needed to show – uh, your sacramental record, but you just didn't have access for some reason. Like, what would be the the proper protocol to, uh, I don't know, show your standing as a Catholic? I'm not sure. <laughs> um, yeah, any insight on any of those things uh, would be helpful. Thanks. So first, she she didn't give us a name. That's, which, yeah, it's true. So she's obviously a fake person. Fake person for sure. It's a ghost. Up a phone and calling us. It's 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 the CIA. And secondly, to we, we we all know how the church works. If there's no paperwork, there's no sacrament. So clearly, right. clearly, mm-hmm. he was never baptized, and he has yep. to be baptized. He has to go through RCA, and mm-hmm. uh, has to have his you know marriage reckoning. I don't know. Yeah, no. Uh, yes, this is how this is how we work in the church. Is uh, if there's no paperwork, you do it again. There is no salvation outside of paperwork. Amen. The first thing that Jesus will do when he comes again is that he will gather to himself all of the church secretaries and will ask them for the sacramental records books. And the church yes. secretaries, which will be the first ones into heaven, will open up the books before our Lord and he will peruse the books and every name that's in there will be added to the book of life and everyone that's not will be damned for all eternity. Yes. And that's why we keep them in safes. Yes. Yes. So that when the light of him coming upon earth overwhelms everything, Mm -hmm. the books are fine in the safe. Exactly. Anyways, seriously, seriously. So, So, okay. okay, So just in this particular question situation, it's very simple. You get an affidavit that says like a witness of someone who said, yes, Mm -hmm. they were baptized and that's fine. If they're married, there should be some form of this in their marriage paperwork that they can probably get a hold of. Secondly, this is the other, but this is where it gets the other thing. I don't ask for paperwork. For I don't ask for proof of Catholic, being a Catholic for godparents. <gasps> for for two reasons. One is the church doesn't require it of me. I don't think so. Um, I just trust it. But sec- secondly, if I can be completely honest here for a second, mm-hmm. godparents aren't absolutely necessary for the sacrament. Yeah. You don't need to have godparents, but you need to have witnesses in the sacramental record book. I, I know. Well, uh, yeah, yes and no, but it's like if you do an emergency baptism, there's no godparents. That's true. But you would still put down witnesses to the baptism. Well, to be the parents. Yeah. But they're not witnesses. They're the parents. Like, mm. like because there's a diocese in Italy that's removed all godparents for now to, huh. to stop the mob. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's a, like a mob thing, apparently, or something yeah. like that. So, um Listen, so the whole notion of a... Because, like, uh, it's... Because you have... Man, this is opening a can of worms for me because I'm doing a lot of baptism stuff right now and I'm just, like, it it just makes my brain want to explode. So I I have to do a lot of this work on my own and so I have to simplify in order just to get things done. And so I I just say, put down your form, who they are and what faith they are. Mm -hmm. I will have people who will say, I want my child baptized and the godparents are... Uh, a Jehovah's Witness and an Orthodox Jew. Huh. And I'll be like, yeah, no, that's not how this works. Uh, and in fact, either neither of them can be even a Christian witness, you know? Yeah. Um, people don't understand this. Like, because for a lot of people, the godparents is actually a cultural role. A cultural honorary title. Thing, that's all Not what it's meant to be, which is someone who aids in the raising of the faith. I, I, I am godfather to seven people. Uh, and I told the parents, my way of aiding them in the growth of their faith will be I will remember them constantly at Mass. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> that's about all that's I can deal. probably promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's all I can really promise, to be honest. I, I'm not good at sending cards, of being involved in the day to day life. And some of them don't even live here, uh, mm-hmm. literally all around the world. So uh, I, that's what I can promise. Because I know if, you, if you're okay with that, then that's, then that's fine. Um, but godparents aren't absolutely essential to the sacrament, right? And so, anyways, that's just a whole other thing here. 
but so I'm always shocked when I find out that there are parishes that ask for proof of being a Catholic oh, yeah. for the godparents. I've never, I've and never, we'll, we will like call people up. If, I've if never encountered this before. Uh, I've never encountered yeah. this. If they're not an act. Uh, so one of the things we ask is when was the last time you received communion? Uh, and if it was like not a regular reception, like we'll call them and talk to them uh, before we, now most of the time we'll accept them. But we, we like to have that conversation with people, which I can, you know, which is helpful for kind of bringing people back or um, maybe offering the chance to um, validate marriages and that kind of thing as a practice. But uh, yeah. So, but here's the thing like, okay, I'm going to read Canon Law quickly here. Okay. Canon 874 to be permitted to, to take on the function of a sponsor, a person must be designated by the one to be baptized by the parents or the person who takes their place, or in their absence by the pastor or minister, and have the aptitude and intention of fulfilling this function. Have completed the 16th year of age unless the diocesan bishop has established another age, or the pastor or minister has granted an exemption for a just cause. Be a Catholic who has been confirmed and has already received the Most Holy Sacrament of the Eucharist and leads a life of faith in keeping with the functions to be taken on, not to be bound by any canonical penalty legitimately imposed or declared not to be the father or mother of the one baptized uh, a baptized person who belongs to a non-catholic ecclesial community is not to participate except together with a catholic sponsor and then only as a witness of the baptism there is nothing there that says i need to prove canonically that they are catholic but they have to be catholic they have to be but i don't have to do paperwork to prove it there's nothing there's no there's no system of recording for that that is implied there all it says is that that's what they have to be and i can trust their word essentially how do you prove something without paperwork ridiculous you trust people's word and that is just to get back to the other part of the question just to make it clear um that person without baptismal records all we have to do is interview uh, for my diocese it's usually it's two people if you can one person if you can't get two um that says oh yeah they were baptized on this date here's and a picture i was there i saw it i seen it all here's i have to do picture. is say i seen it or a picture yeah. is helpful so we just grab yep. everything we can yep. uh and the church does trust people's word pretty yep. much you know yeah mm -hmm. yep so and this is this is the thing so i i just trust people's word because yeah the godparent in the end also at the same time will not invalidate the reception of the sacrament sure right so that's why i don't worry about it too much the, the the law does not require this of me so i will not do it i have enough things on my plate um and so i i'm going you know i might put together a little letter for parents going forward saying hey this is what is usually expected of a godparent when you're choosing them um so please you know keep this in mind but then i've done my due diligence i have it's on their conscience now to see if this person actually stands for that or not all this is making me terribly nervous because I have no idea how much of the stuff I do in my parish is a parish thing, a diocesan thing, or a universal law thing, or so, none of those things. I, had I have someone no ask idea. Me, I just I had, do what I'm, what I'm told. <laughs> I had someone ask me once for a, a few weeks, ago, a couple months ago for a letter uh, s stating that they were a Catholic uh, in my parish. They weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't registered or anything. Yeah. So my question was, where do you live? And they gave me the address. They're in my boundaries. I said, here's a letter. <laughs> and all it said was, this person is a Catholic within the boundaries of my parish. I said nothing yeah. about their competency to be a godparent or anything like that because that's not my job or worry. Uh, my job was to prove that, yes, they actually live in my parish, that they are parishioner. They are technically a parishioner, not by virtue of practice, but by virtue of where they live and their baptism. You are a parishioner regardless you know, of if you go to mass is, or not. It, it, this, it has nothing to do with it. The database means nothing about actually being a parishioner. And so I don't, I don't force people to go through my database all the time. Man, this is bringing up another can of worms uh, that like there is a difference between trying to use sacramental encounters as opportunities to re-evangelize people. Yes. And yes holding sacrament holding people hostage yes uh in a we in a, not holding them hostage for the sacraments but just in that general sort of like we need to at least threaten everybody who right. is somehow going to encounter the church like so, yeah how much how effective that's going to be but so because like my problem though becomes like i'm in my parish maybe 60 percent of my time of my active my, my active time of being a pastor yeah because of all my phd and diocesan responsibilities and stuff like this right. like it's a different situation i, than what, I don't than have what time in. to 
I wish I did have time. Like, so where I actually put more of my attention is not with the godparents. I put it with the parents. Yeah. So I put on my form, where were you married? <laughs> or sorry, which church were you married in is what yeah. I put. And often, a lot of times I get civil. I say, oh, I need to have a conversation with you. Mm-hmm. And I just to see if they're going to be open to regularizing their marriage. As long as there's that openness, that's the hope. If they follow through with it, that's on them. I've done my piece now, right? So that's where I put my focus on because you're promising to raise your child in the faith. Mm-hmm. Are you actually living that? Now, I, of course, I know some people are going to say, well, the same logic goes for the godparent. I'm like, yes, but the day-to-day life of the child, the important, the, I have to, again, I can, I'm only one man. I can only do so much. So where am I going to put yeah. the weight of my attention? I'm going to put it on right. the parents because the more immediate effect of their faith on the child is more valuable than it is with the godparents yeah all that makes sense the canon law presumes a lot of closeness of parishioners smaller parishes it presumes Mm -hmm. smaller parishes really um and a sense of locality that we don't have in north america that i really hate actually Mm -hmm. Uh, especially after being in scotland i'm like "Ah, everything this makes more sense here everything's closer yeah uh, you can walk <laughs> everywhere it's great um so i think these are can law does, has not taken the north american reality seriously enough um and just and we have less, less priests we don't have you know we yeah my parish isn't massive i've got right. 700 families i get about 700 people on a weekend not but massive still. but still a lot yeah that's actually bigger than a lot of european parishes because they're smaller they're closer and you're more integrated into the the local community life. Yeah. Yes. Well, can of worms. Can of worms indeed. Maybe that's good enough for today's theological emergency. Oh yeah. So that, one we, took, that one took We over. can get to the topic and I can get to my day off. How about that? It sounds good. All right. Um, I did not get time to prep. Well, I mean, I had two ideas. I'm going to go with the first one. I don't think I've talked about it. So, um, and I don't really even know where it's going to go, but let's just, uh, let's have some fun. Let's have some fun. And now it is time for presbyteral exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good, quite good. Indubitably. <laughs> I bet they can't wait to learn. They're gonna learn <laughs> it's my favorite part. It's the best part. <laughs> yes. yes, quite. Yes, quite. So, question. Mm. Why was Vatican II called? Well, you know... I think the bishops were kind of bored. You know, they hadn't seen each other in a long time. Um, you know, some like had been developing party hosting skills. Some wanted to show off their new uh, charcuterie boards and that kind of thing. So like, you know what? Let's have a big party at the Vatican. Um, Vatican one was fun. Let's do a sequel. Uh, let's, let's just mix Electric stuff Boogaloo. up. Exactly. It was uh, just for funsies. I'm pretty sure. I'm totally sure that's what it was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's it. You know what? That's it. We're done. Great episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. That's the end of presbyteral exhortations. <laughs> All right. Um, so can I, I'm going to read a, a, a long quote. Get, what do I have here? You have an introduction to Christianity by Car- Joseph Cardinal Ratzinger. That's right. Um, oh, quick thing. Someone had written mm. in. I'm going to just say it now. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, forgot I forgot to answer to this. So yeah. people say, why do I keep on saying Ratzinger? Isn't that disrespectful to Pope Benedict? Um, so there's two things with this. One is actually there is this weird obsession in North America that once someone's become a pope, that you always have to refer to them by their papal name. Mm-hmm. The Italians, it's actually quite common them, for example, to call them Pope Bergoglio or Pope Ratzinger. Mm-hmm. They don't, they go by their ancestral name like their family name over their pontifical name it's just kind of a common it's actually not that i think i think for whatever reason in north america we've gotten to this idea that well by calling him by his his last name and not his title uh, we're actually being disrespectful this is not the case there's two reasons for this one is like ratzinger wrote most of his stuff as ratzinger right and there is a I would call it an academic distinction. I'm actually making this distinction in my thesis right. so that I can limit what I have to read. Um, what he writes as a cardinal and as as Joseph Ratzinger is different than what he writes as Pope. In fact, right. what name did he publish Jesus of Nazareth under? Did he publish it under Joseph Ratzinger? Yes, he did. 
because I know he like in the introduction he kind of like says, "Hey, these, these are my reflections." <laughs> they're not, my like, reflections. They are not. A re- they're they are not part of magisterial teaching. Right. That's a very important thing. And so by calling him Ratzinger, I'm, I mean part of it's just you play fast and loose as you've been dealing with the guy's thought a lot. Uh, yeah. But there, uh, what he writes as Joseph Ratzinger isn't bound by the magisterial office the mm-hmm. way it would be by if he was as pope. And so there's limitations, I would say, to what he can investigate as, as pope, and we can talk about as pope, over what he can talk about as Joseph Ratzinger, as a cardinal, as a bishop, as a priest, etc. Yeah. So it's not disrespectful. That being said, yeah. Yeah. That being I, said, I, I don't think either of us would, would call um, Pope Francis Bergoglio because no. other people would see it as right. disrespect. Exactly. Like So I, when I'm saying Ratzinger, it's often 99.9% of the time, it's because I'm reading pre-papal stuff by Ratzinger. Yeah, because you're reading a book that says Ratzinger on the title, exactly. <laughs> on the front yeah, we, the cover of it. So I just, mean, but there's also, yeah. notice the sticker? <laughs> yes. It says <laughs> Pope Benedict the 16th. <laughs> just in case yeah. This guy know. became Pope, just in case you don't know, right? Yeah. Um, it became a great, I'm sure Ignatius Press was very happy when he became Pope because it meant they got to sell a lot more of his books. They can just reissue those books, that's stamp right. a sticker so on that's, there. that's kind of it. There's nothing, it's, it's, it's I'm using the word I'm using Ratzinger in my thesis. It's 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 his pre papal stuff I'm really focusing on, and so it's that's it. If I was, yeah. in fact, often when I cite anything that he wrote as Pope, I would call him Pope Benedict. <laughs> it's just it's really a, a academic distinction for me that I have to keep in my head. Otherwise, I get lost. So, anyways, all right. So I was rereading this before I left for my trip. I was rereading the Ford to this book, mm-hmm. and something really struck me because it talks about the council. I want to talk about the council. Yeah, um, let's do it. Um, and its purpose and there was I'm going to work really hard to not get too caught up into my more technical stuff in my thesis but rereading this part from his his preface to the new edition uh, my brain kind of exploded because I saw something I didn't see before hmm. so he's setting it up he's talking about the, the historical moment of the council but he's talking about uh, the kind of Marxist push in 1968 in, in, in academic circles in the West. And he talks about the fall of communism in 1989 and the kind of the tragedy this brought because everyone thought Marxism would be the definitive answer to the problem of life. And it turned out not to be the case. Right? <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> right. So, so he asked, where was the voice? So this is on page 13 of the most recent publication of it, of Introduction to Christianity, if you're looking it up if you want to read along for funsies. Uh, anyway, mm-hmm. where was the voice of the Christian faith at that time? In 1967, when the book was being written, Introduction to Christianity, the fermentation of the early post-conciliar period was in full swing. This is precisely what the Second Vatican Council had intended, to endow Christianity once more with the power to shape history. The 19th century had seen the formulation of the opinion that religion belonged to the subjective private realm and should have its place there. But precisely because it was to be categorized as something subjective, it could not be a determining factor in the overall course of history and in the epochal decisions that had to be made as a part of it. Now, following the council, it was supposed to become evident again. The faith of Christians embraces all of life that it stands in the midst of history and in time and has relevance beyond the realm of subjective notions. Christianity, at least from the viewpoint of the Catholic Church, was trying to emerge again from the ghetto to which it had been relegated since the 19th century and to become involved once more in the world at large. Thoughts before I pontificate? Oh man, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Um, the church being relegated. The church being relegated to the ghetto, to use his words, is something that is both happens in history. There's, there's. It's not just the outside forces that do this to the right. church. The church. It's the inside herself. forces as well, right? Yeah. She allows this to happen. Um, And it's one of the things that we, we always kind of bring up here and there uh, on our podcast that we have not, the church has not, not uh, my goodness, that we have not fully grasped the implication of two world wars on right. the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
and what that does to faith, religion, culture, everything, everything, mm-hmm. everything, everything. Um, and there's something, there's something easier about withdrawing mm-hmm. with having a defensive stance and just saying, Hey, if you want to come in, you can come in, but that's it. It's, uh, a safer way to go about Christianity, but it's never been what the church is supposed to be. Right. Those right. are my first thoughts. Okay. Yeah. So he, he, his situation, his situation, yeah, his situation, ah, he's situating the council. There we go. Uh, he's situating the council within the context of the 19th century. He, in other words, the French revolution mm-hmm. um, and, and the impacts of it. That this is, this goes back to Kant and his uh, subjectivizing of religion. Like he's kind of the ideological figure that makes religion seem like it's just this private notion. And we see this today to this day in politics and stuff like this, right? You hear politicians saying, well, personally, I'm Catholic. Privately, I'm Catholic, but publicly, I'm something different. Right. This is where it comes from. And, and yeah. the church was both relegated. This is why the church really struggled with the notion of the emergence of the nation state, for example, because she was trying to deal with the, because she didn't know how to deal with how the church becomes public still. How does the church influence the whole of life? Because if Christ is who he says he is, this is the heart of everything. Christ is who he says he is. If he is the whole, as Balthazar likes to say, that he touches, then Christ touches everything about what it means to be human. He touches the whole of creation, the cosmos, everything. In other words, God touches the whole of his created order that nothing, not one action, one thought, one word, one place is outside the touch of his grace or meant to be. And the church is meant to be a mediating institution, if if you will, uh, making that present to the world and constantly sanctifying the whole world. Well, the nation, nation state emerges, um, and it says, no, actually, you see, the wars of religion, it builds up some myths even around the wars of religion. It says, you see, religion is actually something that divides people. And so clearly, religion is something more of a private opinion. And so we need to find new ways to unify people so that around common unifying notions whereby these divisive things will have to be relegated to the private. And that it's all about just this, whatever you experience internally, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And that's all that that's so faith has no implications on one's external actions. It becomes subjectified to a point of just becoming like emotionalized almost, right? Like it's just, it's whatever I think personally, but I, it's, it has no bearing on others. So the church becomes not great at evangelizing because of this. Um, and the church both is struggling to deal with this reality. And I think not, I think not explicitly, but it becomes almost like an implied result of their of this that Catholics kind of buy into that notion. Part of it is we want to have a foothold in the new realities, mm-hmm. and so we play by their rules. It's why, as a quick aside, this is why things like integralism have ris- have arisen. I don't agree with integralism. What Ratzinger's talking about here is not integralism because the church is not to be a kingdom in this world that governs all things. Mm-hmm. But it's arisen because it's recognized the church's lack of social responsibility and its, and its social sphere. And I think this becomes especially exacerbated in North America, especially mm-hmm. in the 1920s with the Irish bishops there and everything. They want to become seen as amenable to American society. We can be Americans first and Catholics second. Yeah, this is why Americanism is a heresy, uh, and mm-hmm. again, not a lot of this. Like a lot of this was from good places. You know, people weren't getting jobs because they were Catholic. Like, yeah. so I get it. Like, I totally get why there was this deep concern to regularize Catholics in in North America. Like, it, it makes sense to me. But when you do this, when you try to seek out maybe too much comfort, you lose the cross, mm-hmm. and you lose your identity. What it means to be a church, so. As another quick aside, this is why I think in hundreds of years from now, Pope Leo XIII is going to be seen as the great genius of the modern church because of all his social teaching. Mm. It's the Catholic social teaching that becomes the beginning of a way for Catholicism to touch the whole of reality. So this is like all the historical background that we're dealing with. 
And Rasker okay. is saying, this is why the council was called. Is that part of the discourse around the council? Ever? No. Um, because all, all of the Sorry. discourse around uh, the council is is this polemical back and forth uh, caricatures of cr- the creating of two sides and then just using polemics against two sides without it's very tough for us still to look at the council in any sort of objective way because we're still so close to it mm-hmm. and we're still feeling the effects of various interpretations of it mm-hmm. um, so it's we don't look at it objectively yes yes um, and also we don't yeah. look at it as a movement of the Holy Spirit right we look at it as this like political movement or a political gathering or a strategy instead of like the Holy Spirit moving through church and history and those things aren't mutually exclusive sure sure because in a way it is a political movement right for the church to become public again right um and it's and there are politics that play at the count when you start reading about the history of how the documents oh my goodness are developed, yeah. right? they're always it's, every councilor's politics but it's, but it's always very fascinating because i'm reading i'm like thank god these guys stepped in like and it, it really shifted the tide of the whole council when you can get these many council fathers to say yes to something that is very not different but like it's more rooted in the tradition than the than the, the proposed documents that were first drafted that's quite mm-hmm. impressive when you think yeah. about it like and like man it must have man Rome must have been amazing at the time because there's all these bishops and theologians there and these theologians are giving lectures like left right and center for bishops to come to like yeah it must have been like i see i mean I'm a nerd, and I hear this, and I'm like, and also like all these greats are there, right? Like Duluba, yeah, Ratzinger, heavy Paul hitters, a little bit there. Um, he wasn't involved with the council, but he's around. Um, Bouyer, all these guys, like it's just like, man, what a, what a time to be alive that would have been. Uh, anyways, I say all this because I think this is we, especially our generation and younger, we have no experience of the '60s and '70s. And we Correct. definitely have no experience of the 40s and 50s. And, and, and no one alive today has experiences anymore of the 19th century. Okay. Um, of early 90, 90, oh wait, the 19th century. You're right. 19, sorry. 19, My brain was doing. Yeah. Sorry, yes, yes, not 20th, 19th. We're in the 21st <laughs> Thank now. Thank you. Sorry. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry. So I don't think people recognize how deeply the enlightenment has maybe not intentionally because people like Kant is actually trying to find a way to justify religion in the, in, in the new philosophy. Yes. Hegel is trying to find a way to justify Christianity in his philosophy, right? So like they're, they're working at this from Christian faith. They go horribly wrong, <laughs> horribly wrong. But this is like part of the attempt here, right? There is this real There's attempt this, to find... Can I be polemical yep. for a second? Yeah, that's one thing that fascinated me when I was studying uh, philosophy in, in college. That this this Protestant desire to somehow fit Christianity into what was then the modern world, right. that is simply not in, uh, not in most. I think you can maybe say that with Descartes, um, maybe. But anyway, it's just a fascinating project in the nineteenth uh, century, twentieth century, early and earlier, right? Like so, it's yeah, and earlier. I, we do not recognize how deeply this notion that faith is nothing more than an individual private choice has actually undermined, destroyed, and annihilated what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. We breathe the air of modernity more than we do Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the whole point of the council was to say, the real- this is the reality. This is the reality we live in. Um, we got to learn how to how to actually be Catholic in this because we can't. How do how does Catholicism touch the whole of history, the whole of life? How does it change? How does it become apocal shaping again? How does it how does it touch the whole of life once more? Was a very important question, and I think history will come out on the side of the council for this reason, because it is it becomes the instigating force of this. Of course, like, I, I mean, I don't want to get too much into what happened after the council right now. Cause it'll just go on forever here. 
yeah. I want to talk more about the sources, but just to say that a lot of stuff that happened after the council, like, um, actually, Larry Chap brought this up about uh, they republishing a new book by or a book by Dulabak at Ignatius Press on the church, and he wrote it in 1967, two years after the mm. council, because he saw things going horribly awry and getting away from the. No, he says that the, the the council was becoming the there was polemics around the council of trying to label things conservative and liberal. And he says that was not the council's intention. It was not the council father's intentions. And he's right. And this, this mm-hmm. is two years after the council. Two years. Yeah. Two, like, like the ink's still drying, right? <laughs> yeah. And he's writing this already because he saw forces at play to manipulate the heart of the church and what she is and what it means to be a Catholic. I say all this because... I think there's too easy a rejection of the council today. It's the easy thing to do. Mm-hmm. And I understand that temptation to the easy thing to do. Absolutely. Life would be so much easier and better and peaceful because of it. But it wouldn't be seeking the truth, though. Mm-hmm. See, the easy path avoids the cross and thus avoids truth itself. If we are to be Catholics... We need to be obedient to the magisterium. And councils are one of the most normative forms of, and one of the most authoritative forms mm-hmm. of magisterium. And we need to understand what the council is trying to do in order to understand and appreciate these documents all the more. So I want to give two examples. Is there anything you, I'm sorry, I've been monologuing a lot here. Am I making sense? Yeah, I think you're making sense. Okay. I usually jump in if you're not. Okay. So let's bring in, I want to bring in two, two, two and a half things. Yeah, okay, we got time, good. I want to bring in two and a half things <laughs> to okay. uh, show that this is what the council is trying to do. That is trying to address the 19th century, the French Revolution, the privatization of religion, and the mm-hmm. isolating of religion from public life. The first one is Lumen Gentium itself. Just that one of my favorite phrases is that the church is the universal sacrament of salvation. Mm-hmm. Right? And what's a sacrament again? It's a visible sign of a mysterious and invisible reality that affects what it signifies. What was it signifying? Salvation. And so it's to be a sign of salvation. It's mm-hmm. to make salvation present to the world. That's the job yes. of the church. Not to, and it's universal. Yeah, it's for the whole. It's Catholic. It's the whole, mm-hmm. because Christ is the whole. So the church's role then is to touch the whole of life. That sacrament is to touch everything. This is stuff. This is essential. It's interesting. This is not explicit for me in, in Mysterion, but this becomes. I'm like as I'm reading up on this stuff. I'm like this becomes more and more yeah. explicit within the book, even though it wasn't necessarily something I was. It was an idea. I was I was latching onto at the time. Right. Which is kind of cool. That's always fun stuff when you realize, wait, there's this idea there that I didn't even recognize that's already there. So that's kind of fun, right? Um, that is cool. Yeah. That's what the church is. So she's supposed to touch everything. Well, mm-hmm. one, and this is this is a little side dive I've been doing a little bit. I think it's chapter five of Lumen Gentium, which mm-hmm. is the universal call to holiness. There is a subsection. Uh, on, it's, an, it's at the end of paragraph 40 um, on the universal call to holiness that I think is really important. It actually highlights what I'm talking about here. It says this, Thus it is evident to everyone that all the faithful of Christ, of whatever rank or status, are called to the fullness of the Christian life and to the perfection of charity. By this holiness, as such, a more human manner of living is promoted in this earthly society. To be a saint is to be human. To be, to be more truly human. and fully human. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We So our humanity is the material by which the church's sacramentality, if you will, is manifested to the world. And that, so by this holiness, as such, a more human manner of living is promoted. The more mm-hmm. you're a saint, the more our, the human, the very human way of being is promoted to the whole world. 
and thus becomes its mode of evangelizing and touching all of earthly society and, and bringing earthly society into the so like there was this weird sense that after the council of like oh we have to become like the world it's like no no we enter into the world as leaven to draw yeah. the world into the church on the church's term not on the world's terms right and that's pure, in the purification of truth in christ but like that's I, that phrase right there is everything the council is called to. You and I are called to be saints, so that by being more human, we reveal to the world what it means to be human because we because the perfection of humanity is in Christ. And so the more Christ-like exactly. we are, like I always say to people, like no, no, our different. Um, you know, people always like talk about like the holiness of Mary and, and Jesus as if to mm-hmm. say like, oh, well, they're not like us; they didn't sin. Like, you're right. They're more human, not less human. Yes. <laughs> like, this is the whole point. To be a saint is to be the most human because that's what that's what Christ does. And therefore, then the world sees this humanity and is attracted by it. Like, this is, I think, this is actually a great reason Mother Teresa had the effect she had. They saw humanity alive in her. Right. Because she was a saint. And I think this is this is what the council was trying to get at. There is not anything in life that is not touched by Christ to make us more human and therefore to be a saint and therefore to make Christ attractive to the whole world. Yeah, so um, it's, it's always there's always a temptation, and I, I've fallen into it before as well, to answer every problem by oversimplifying something mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't do both the answer or the problem justice. Mm-hmm. But this is something that's been bouncing around in my head for a while. Stuff that you've said, stuff that I've experienced in my parish. Um, and I talked about this with um, our friends over at the Crunch a little bit as well, is that in a certain, a certain understanding of evangelization is overrated mm-hmm. in the sense that um, evangelization as a technique, as a skill, not saying that that's not useful where it is. Um, definitely can be very useful, can be definitely what people are called to, can be helpful. But that is not the main thrust of what evangelization, where evangelization actually happens. Right. It actually is, happens in places of holiness. Yeah. Um, and someone who is holy but doesn't know any evangelization techniques, can't give their witness in two minutes, uh, whatever else, doesn't know what alpha is, whatever else, uh, will be more effective than someone who knows all those things, mm-hmm. but has not yet um, out is stuck in the purgative states or something. Yeah. You know, it's just yeah. different. Yeah. Because that's something I've been seeing. Well, you, you were talking about like your parish, how people have just been showing up as far as like interested in RCA and that sort of thing. 13 and people I've been noticing had two more come in. 13 yeah. out of nowhere. Yeah. And I'm seeing that more and more in, in my parish as well, um, that the holiness of the parishioners is drawing people in and drawing people back, um, even without evangelization workshops. Like I said, I don't want to exactly. throw away all that effort. Uh, I don't want to like totally rag on every knee shall bow. It's a great podcast. People should listen to it. It's very good. Uh, but I think we can some, and I, I think they would, uh, those guys would agree with this as well. Um, that we forget sometimes that core of the attractiveness of holiness. Right. Because holiness will do two things. It, it, it will, it will, um, content and form. If I can be technical for a second, come together in holiness. It's the mm-hmm. you, holiness is what unites content and form. So by this, I mean that how you live and what you say are both important what you say has value because of how you live and how you live has value because of what you say. Mm-hmm. It's not just, Oh, just be holy. Don't have to say anything. Right. Or it's not saying just say the, the truth without being holy. Neither of those are the Christian form. The Christian form mm-hmm. is beautiful in that it, it's all encompassed. It touches the whole person and it incorporates the whole person, draws the whole person into Christ, into Christ's form of life. And, and lives out his form in their life. That's what holiness is. And so you need both. But the holy person will naturally want to seek out to make Christ known in a way that proposes and doesn't impose. And people will have listen to it and see it as credible because they see the effect of the word. Because this is the thing. 
the word is effective folks yeah because <laughs> christ is that word his salvation is effective and the saint is the proof of this and it touches everything like it touches the per so like when you're going like so this is why like i i i know i'm gonna get in trouble for saying this probably but i don't care in the sense like i'm not against church workers in general but i think we no. do over careerize working in the church a bit yeah sure to think that the only way i can evangelize and be holy is if i work for the church i'm not saying that there aren't people who should be working in ministry and stuff like this we need that yeah mm -hmm. but what it does then is it professionalizes evangelization and holiness yeah and we're not it doing the church a favor. it yes exactly even like our models of holiness are modeled after uh, a clerical lifestyle um which is it's not help it's not at the point <laughs> so everyone needs to be holy okay we understand from, we understand that from vatican II. good therefore everyone needs to be like a priest wait right. no 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 one does not equal the other <laughs> it's usually the opposite um yeah <laughs> <laughs> but this is the point like this is why like i'll, I'll probably share it soon because i'll have to share it with my parish here eventually um mm. some ways i want to reorganize how i do my parish is around all of this it's yeah. to say like the home is the primary place of seeking holiness and the where you live like is going it matters and going to get to know your neighbors is really important and showing charity to them is really important doing that alone will make Christ, and when as you get to know them they'll say well it's Jewish weekend oh I went to mass oh yeah I noticed you guys leave every Sunday at that time yeah oh, I didn't know you go to church you, you seem normal <laughs> yeah because I'm more human because I'm holy yeah <laughs> but this is where this is what the council is trying to intend Every person has an involvement and a place in the life of holiness to making Christ present in the workplace, in the home, in their neighborhoods, uh, in their cities, in their schools. Christ touches all of that. It's not a ban it's not make, make, making banal Christ, but it's actually lifting up the banal because mm -hmm. that's what sacrament does. It takes up really boring things like bread and bad wine right <laughs> and says this is my body this is my blood given for you yeah exactly it makes it it makes the banal into the greatest gift possible that's what sacramentality mm -hmm. does it's the church uses you and me very fallen human beings mm -hmm. we are we have these we hold these treasures in clay vessels saint paul says right and that is how Christ works, which also then starts to help us become a lot more accepting of our own sinfulness and we become a lot lighter about it. Well, duh, of course I'm a sinner. Like, it's not a bad, I don't see that as a bad thing in the sense, like in the sense of like, this is who I am. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky thing to try to communicate, um, but to not being destroyed by your sin is not the same as accepting your sin right right accepting that you are a sinner is not the same as endorsing sin exactly there is there it's it's a removal of pride from yeah. our understanding of our own sin yes whereas the prideful person is destroyed by their sin because they are disappointed in what they yep. have fallen they to themselves up the humble person while regrets their sin and wants to um, repent of it is not destroyed by it because they are aware of who they are and who God and what they lack and, and who God's what God's love is. It's and what than God's sin. love is. Sin yes. is nothing. It's literally nothing, folks. It's the absence yeah. of something. That's what sin is. And mm -hmm. if it's the absence of something, that means it's not real in a sense. In a sense, it's parasitic, right? Sin is parasitic. Yes, exactly. So Christ kills the parasite. Mm-hmm without destroying you anyways um yeah so this is this is the universal call this is trying to deprivatize faith and this gets to the second point that i want to just briefly do well, i know a little over yeah. but that's fine yeah. one of the most controversial documents from the council i haven't reread it lately but i was already reading some articles on it um one of its most one of the most controversial documents is not the liturgy one it's no. dignitatis humanae mm -hmm. on freedom of religion yeah now in north america we tend to look at the freedom of religion through the lens of american polity and by this i mean free as a private citizen i have the freedom to express privately my faith however i see fit yes yes 
that is not and that's how and and that's John uh, uh, John Courtney Murray uh, really I think but he both tra- he translated Dignitatis Humanae for the council documents into English hmm. he was not happy with how the document came out John Courtney Murray is a Jesuit folks who was very who's very prominent in Whig Thomas circles around the notion of the relationship between church and state and how mm-hmm. but he takes a very Americanist view of of public of the publicness of religion, which is it's around the private individual's ability to live out their faith without the hindrance of the state. Mm-hmm. And there's a truth there. Sure. But the problem becomes that that's not what the council's talking about. The council, and it's not integralism again, but the council actually, and it's saying just generally about freedom of, when it's talking about freedom of religion, it's not talking about treating all religions the same. Mm-hmm. It's not, people, again, misinterpret us because they miss the social dimension here. But it's saying that man is first a religious creature, not a national creature. Yeah. And therefore, the seeking of religious truth is what the state ought to be orient ought to be protecting and promoting as a first good. Mm-hmm. So the right to religious freedom is not the ability to practice is not the ability to be um, whatever you want as you see fit, but rather it's the ability to seek religious truth wherever it leads. The Catholic mm-hmm. will say, then we have the fullness of truth. And that these other religions have little aspects of truth and that Mm -hmm. they should have a right to seek that out because we believe the truth is so, the truth of Christ is so convicting that these little truths will then lead them to the truth itself in the end. But these are, these are what, these are what are meant to govern life because man is by nature a religious creature, not just privately, but socially as a body of Mm -hmm. people. And so the state is required to order itself around the seeking of religious truth first but what happens, like, this is why I think I said, I don't know if I said it here or not, but, uh, like, there was a few weeks ago, the Supreme Court made a decision about whether a, a, a uh, football coach could pray on the sidelines at his football game. I hated the decision. Because who is the state to say man can act out of his religious nature? <laughs> yeah, they don't have the authority to do so. They don't have the authority to do this, actually, right? Um. And this actually grinds against our North American notion of democracy and everything. Yep. <laughs> um, because it's saying that the seeking of truth is what the, the state is to be ordered around, which is not how it's ordered today. And that, no. that democracies, if they are to thrive, need to be centering themselves around this. Mm-hmm. This is what Dignitatis Humanae is arguing. In other words, it's trying to give religion, more broadly speaking, but then Catholicism as the truth, a place to be public again in all facets to say we have something to say about this foreign policy and this is why the popes still speak out on this stuff it's yeah. not a political game it's it's a christocentric moral game of this is who jesus says he is he speaks to all humanity and if you're seeking the truth in terms of moral action we have to listen to him because moral truth is more important and fundamental and vital to and, and rooted in religious truth being human over pragmatic politics yeah what do yeah you think? Uh, it, though it's interesting so and the reality of this is evidential in the sense that you know the idea that man is first and foremost a religious creature um okay so if you have a religious creature in a society that tries to move religion to the private then what is public and what should be or what even the secular becomes religious in a sense so like the religious the only way i can just i can understand um the political climate in the united states is that it is a religious climate yes that there is religious fervor in it's you it's the only thing that explains our politics is that for the majority of americans that is religion yes Yes, and but it's false religion. Yes, and this is the whole point. Dignitatis mm-hmm. humanae is is demythologizing the nation state. Yes, it's not saying here. This is the interesting thing. It's not saying um, national states are a bad thing. No, they can be fine. It's just saying they're not ordered properly. Exactly, they're ordered to themselves. Right. So this is this is where interglists have a point. Mm-hmm. 
in their saying like man is first and foremost a religious creature where they go wrong is they take a very modern notion of power apply it to the church and says well actually the pope essentially you know, I'm, not, I'm being a little caricature here but the sure. pope essentially and the bishops should run everything right and, and it kind of comes because the ancient world kind of understood this so why mm-hmm. popes and bishops were both spiritual leaders and like city governors <laughs> Mm-hmm. The Pope was both running Rome as a city and was the universal father to the whole church in, in ancient Rome. Yeah. <laughs> like with Gregory the Great and Leo the Great. Yes. They did both of those things because the ancient world understood that religious truth has a pride of place. Yeah. Um, Ratzinger talks about this very well in Truth and Tolerance. I read that on the, that was one of the books I read on my trip. And, mm-hmm. um, and he does this very well. And this is, so this is one of those enlightening moments for me because then the church becomes something apocal shaping again. It says, actually, we have a truth that speaks to all of man that man ought to desire to want to orient himself towards. And that this becomes, Christ is the saving figure over history who orients us towards the ultimate truth, which is God himself. This is why it's hard to practice religion in the public square. It's why it's hard to be a public Christian. It's why it is hard to, um, it's why it's hard to even see sacramentality. This is like this is other forms of modernism. Mm-hmm. This is the air we breathe. But to me, I say all this in the end to say what the council was called to, we still haven't listened to why it was called. And maybe it's a, p- a fault of myself as a theologian and others for not making this clearer. Yeah. And again, I've only kind of recently realized this. It's, the threads are coming together. Sure. But add to this, then we we've been have we're we're asking the wrong questions when we're debating about the council. <laughs> this is why Ratzinger talks about like hermeneutics and everything around the council is to say we're asking the wrong question. Our question is why was it called? What was it trying to address? And I was trying to address how is the church truly still the church? Is why it has a very strong theology of the church. Yeah. When you mm-hmm. understand this notion of the church, what she is, of who Christ is, that he's the whole, that he talks to all of humanity, that to be a saint is to be the most human because you're closest to Christ, and that to be human is to seek out God, that that's your first choice of life, that, that, that that's what you're oriented towards. It's why national politics become religious because man is by nature religious and so he's going to express religion one way or another that is why the council is called to say no to be a catholic is to be public and to touch everything yeah and so it's going and actually one of the interesting things in that chapter on universal call to holiness it says it really strives to say everyone's called to the evangelical councils mm-hmm. of poverty chastity and obedience because it's a way of demythologizing in as we said i think last podcast around money actually your goods are not your own and we don't live out of this very well. No, mm-mm. because we don't have. We haven't. We haven't asked what it means to be Catholic and how to build up the structures of the church around this new notion to support each other. So, the council, in the end, in my opinion, has been left unread and untried. Mm-hmm. And we need to start ask. We need to start critiquing this privatized notion of religion, which is what the council is called to do. When you start to see that and understand that, you have a lens to see the whole of the council in the right light. And I think it would actually answer a lot of the needs of people on all sorts of parts of the quote unquote spectrum who sure. are still faithful Catholics. Yeah. So, sorry, that was a lot of monologuing on that one, but I'm just very, no, I liked this, it. This, this is the introduction to my thesis essentially. Okay. <laughs> uh, thanks for out. listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Tell your enemies too, because Jesus says we must love our enemies. You can find me getting lunch. You can also find me getting lunch and on Twitter at FR Harrison. <laughs> Contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Do you have a theological emergency? Call 412-912-7995. 412-912-7995. Peace. God bless.